Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today, commentary contributor, uh, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, Puba scholar, activist, thinker, uh, and author of the new book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Jonathan Shanzer. Hey, hey John. John, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Great. So uh, let's talk about your book, which is uh, recently just, just published. Um, uh, commentary readers will know your work over, over, over many years in, in the pages of commentary, most recently uh, and an article about the um, the bizarre happy talk of the Biden administration in relation to its disastrous pullout from Afghanistan. But earlier in 2021, you did write uh, an article for us called uh, "The War Between the Wars," which uh, essentially presaged what was what is the topic of the book that you have now published. Um, about the Gaza conflict with Israel that took place this year and basically how it is a proxy fight that the that the the conflict in the Holy Land has now moved beyond an Israeli-Palestinian conflict into being a proxy war between Israel and Iran. Can you sort of flesh out this idea and then we can go to specifics uh, in the book? Sure. Um, So I think the first thing to remember is that Hamas was born in the late 1980s. And and I I think it would not have uh, evolved the way that it did, um, gaining traction among the Palestinians, being able to destroy the peace process almost single handedly during the 1990s wage uh, a war of suicide bombings and other gruesome acts of terrorism in the early 2000s during the second intifada would not have been able to do that without Iran. Um, Iran has trained, funded, armed uh, the group for decades now. And as um, that relationship has evolved, um, the Israelis have done whatever they can to stop that activity, but they are not able to fully And so Hamas has um, engaged now in five or four, rather, four different wars with um, with Israel. Um, And it's part of a broader campaign that Hamas um, and Hezbollah and other terrorist groups have been waging against Israel, drawing closer and closer to Israel's borders, uh, developing new and more advanced weapons. And as this has happened, the Israelis have decided to take the battle to Iran itself. And we see this in places like Syria, we see it in the Persian Gulf, we see it in cyberspace. Um, And I would argue that what we just saw in May was one flashpoint in this broader war that the Israelis are now calling the war between wars. They see ultimately the likely need to engage with Iran directly, possibly in the months or years to come. Uh, But they engage in these very specific fights to try to weaken Iran's capabilities or that of its proxies. I think one of the striking things about the, about as, as you, as you write about in your book about 
what happened this year was um, the uh, the lack of a gigantic international scandal revolving around Israel's defense of itself. Now, you explain that there was some of the standard issue stuff happened with media organizations complaining about targeting media organizations and all of that. But the Biden administration, uh, for example, with 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 a few exceptions in the course of the actual conflict between um, Israel and, and Gaza uh, very much said that Israel had the right to defend itself against this unbelievable barrage, hundreds of rockets an hour. Um, I think you, you calculate, they calculated that, uh, was it um, 8,000 were used or, or, or I can't remember what the actual count was used in the course so about of about 4,000 during the so war. 4,000 uh, rockets fired at Israel to, astonishingly little result because of the successes of the Iron Dome interception system, but that um, but that something had changed markedly. And the book goes into some description of the evolutionary changes in the perception of the Middle East pretty much from the time of the Arab Spring onward. Can you and, and so that which which helps explain why, say, in 2014, when there was the previous big Gaza war, uh, the Obama administration had a great deal of difficulty trying to reconcile itself to the fact that Israel had the right to its own self-defense and kept intruding on the idea of Israel's self-defense with shuttle diplomacy idiocy on the part of John Kerry acting like there was somebody to shuttle back and forth to, as Henry Kissinger had shuttled during the Yom Kippur War. Um but that that's really not what happened here, uh, that uh, Hamas's aggression was sort of unmistakable. The fact that it was firing on a civilian population was uh, unde- undeniable, that the fact of the, the act of doing this was an undeniable war crime, that Israel had the right to defend itself. What happened that made that tra- change from 2014 to 2021 possible? Well, I think a, a couple things to note. One is that the Abraham Accords of last year um, absolutely leveled the playing field for the Israelis. Um, increasingly, I think um, the world understands that this is not the Arab-Israeli conflict that many of us grew up learning about. Uh, you now have uh, six Arab countries that have made peace with Israel and others that are normalizing um, to one extent or another as we speak. Um, and so the anger was not um, palpable coming from the broader Arab world. It came from basically three places, maybe four, Iran being number one, uh, Qatar, Turkey, and maybe to a certain extent, Malaysia as well. Um, But one gets a sense that the conflict is growing smaller, not larger. And that is, I think, an important component for for American policymakers and, and I think world leaders as well. Um, the other thing that I would just note here, and you, you, you mentioned Biden's response, um, he performed quite well uh, during the first nine days of the war. The, the, the war lasted 11 days. Um, for the first nine days, he had Israel's back. He, he blocked measures at the UN. He deflected aggression from the squad or what we now refer to as the Hamas caucus. Um, they, you know, he, he actually, I mean, he did well. And um, then there was something very odd that happened, and I noted it. I, I, I was very surprised that others didn't at the time, and that was two days before the war ended. Um, the uh, Israeli and Arabic press were reporting that Egypt had brokered a ceasefire. And 
once that ceasefire was settled, but not yet in place, that's when we began to see the harsh rhetoric coming out of the Biden White House. That's when he was, you know, reportedly, according to anonymous sources, talking to Bibi about how he was, quote, done kidding around, end quote, and that, you know, it was time for Israel to end its aggression, right? This was a blank check that he cashed. Um, it was given to him by the Egyptians and by the Israelis, and he used this to message to the far left, to the progressive left of his party. And I have to say, on the one hand, it's great. The Israelis really appreciated how Biden had their back all the way through, and they said so repeatedly during the conflict. On the other hand, it's a bit disappointing that you see that kind of um, rhetoric and really ugly politics coming out of the White House in those last two days of the war. Well, uh, very uh, interesting and uh, a telling, telling reminder of the debt of the bizarre idea that Biden has that he owes some kind of a debt to the people whom he effectively ran against in 2019 and 2020 as the non-progressive candidate in the Democratic race. And we've seen that obviously domestically uh, go on. Let me just ask you uh, to, to fill out a couple of interesting details that I had either uh, not quite focused on, or 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 I think are are very um, uh, colorful and characteristic of of what of of how to think about what happened here. Tell everybody about what you call or what what has been nicknamed the Hamas Metro. <laughs> so that was probably the the one of the more controversial moments in the war. Um, the um, Hamas had spent years and probably tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars preparing a labyrinth of tunnels that were designed to wage commando warfare against the Israelis. So that when the Israelis would put troops on the ground, Hamas commandos, many of whom trained in Iran, um, would pop up out of the tunnels, kill Israelis or kidnap them, um, and potentially turn the tide of the war. So the Israelis apparently caught wind of this. Um, their intelligence in Gaza is, of course, excellent. They really have near total intelligence dominance, as the Israelis would put it. And um, there was a moment in the war, it was fairly early on. Um, I actually remember I was sitting outside trying to enjoy a little bit of sunshine after having um, sat inside all day. It was early evening on the East Coast, and there was a um, a tweet that came out from the IDF, both in English and in Hebrew, saying that um, uh, IDF forces were on the ground in Gaza uh, fighting Hamas. And so I said, okay, I, I got to see this. So I ran back inside. I turned on my TV. Um, just uh, I don't work for Apple. Uh, I don't invest in Apple, but Apple TV is a remarkable technology to be able to watch um, you know, Israeli TV in real time. So I popped it on. I, I turned on Channel 11. And um, I, I saw a reporter looking down at his phone and sort of scratching his head saying, I can't confirm this. I don't know what's going on here, but we don't have troops on the ground. Um, and my sources can't confirm this either. So I said, OK, I'll turn it to Channel 13, the other channel that I had. And same thing, the correspondent saying, I don't get it. And the anchor saying, I don't get it either. Meanwhile, the um, foreign correspondents um, like from the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, AP, AFP, and others, ran the story. 
that troops were on the ground. And they had apparently gotten word from the IDF WhatsApp group also from the spokesman, Jonathan Conricas, that uh, troops were on the ground. They could never confirm it on their own. Um, they didn't get a second source and they ran the story anyway. As this happens, Hamas deploys its commandos into the tunnel system and Israel begins to bombard it heavily, uh, killing dozens if not hundreds of these commando fighters and taking out one of Hamas's greatest assets during the war. So the US correspondents were furious. They were irate, blaming the Israelis for using them in an information operation. The Israelis to this day said, look, we got it wrong. Um, there was a miscommunication. We've changed the tweet within an hour and we corrected the record, but the US correspondents are still very sore about what happened. And they say that they still don't trust the Israelis as a result of this episode. Oh, poor babies. So sad. So Let's sad for these for these journalists that they managed to, you know, to be part of a classic, whatever the Israelis say, a classic use of the bodyguard of lies in the middle of the war in order for one side to defeat another. As though these organizations themselves haven't participated over many, many years in absolutely false. Uh, propagandistic efforts by Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and others to enshrine supposed martyr at you know martyrs and uh, and 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 evil uh, evil Israeli war crimes uh, in the form of as you say in the book uh, eerily well placed Al Jazeera correspondents right on the site to show you when something bad is happening uh, as as if to as if to demonstrate that these things. That these things were staged. Okay, so we got the so we got the uh, Hamas Metro. Uh, tell us about the uh, Al Jala Tower. Another interesting journalistic uh, controversy of the of the conflict. So yeah, that that was probably the other more uh, of the more dramatic moments in in the war, and, and another moment where the Israelis took a lot of heat. Um, this was probably the middle of the war, um, probably about halfway through the Israelis. Um, decided that they needed to take out one entire building inside the Gaza Strip. It was called Al Jala Tower. Um, and what they did is they actually contacted the owner of the building. Um, they called the cell phones of those who were inside, um, warning them to leave. They gave them ample warning, as the Israelis always do. Then they uh, dropped what uh, is commonly known as a knock-knock bomb on the roof. Um, a, a, a very small explosive to let everybody know that this is serious and it's time to get out. Um, everybody left. Everybody got out. There were no casualties as a result of this strike. Um, it was dramatic. The building um, looked, it actually looked like a controlled explosion. It had sort of imploded from within, which was curious to me, but um, you know, that's just something I'll have to continue to sniff around on. Uh, but what ultimately sparked the massive controversy was not just that the, an entire building was destroyed, but it was actually the, the headquarters for the Associated Press and for Al Jazeera. And the allegations that came soon afterwards were, was that Israel was deliberately trying to encumber journalists from doing their job during the middle of a war, that Israel should be blamed for halting the work of truth tellers on the ground in the Gaza Strip. Um, the Israelis ultimately came out 
actually within a few hours with information uh, demonstrating that within the building, there was a Hamas office. And within that office, there was hardware that was being used um, to jam the Iron Dome system. So in other words, there was an effort from that building to try to block the system that was shooting down the thousands of rockets that were being fired into Israeli um, territory and that probably saved thousands of lives, if not tens of thousands of lives during the course of the war. Now, um, at the, in the end, there were, I think um, there, there was a, a, a consensus among those in the White House and the State Department that the Israelis had actually demonstrated proof of the fact that this was happening, number one. But that came long after AP and Al Jazeera and a whole host of other media organizations slammed the Israelis for this practice. But then the other part of it, which I found really interesting, and John, you already sort of hinted at this, which is Al Jazeera is in there. Al Jazeera is owned by the government of Qatar, which is a funder of Hamas. It is a state sponsor of terrorism for Hamas, and it has been for years. Al Jazeera also has been on the spot in places like Iraq and Afghanistan when terrorist attacks have been carried out against the United States. And the U.S. has actually targeted Al Jazeera offices for its involvement in, um, in, in terrorist activity. Of course, Al Jazeera has also been involved in trotting out messages from Osama bin Laden when no one else had them. There have been a lot of questions about this media organization. It raised some questions for me. The last thing that I'll just note is that um, the whole episode invoked um, uh, some questions uh, that had been posed in the past by journalist Mati Friedman, who many of us know based in Israel. And he's actually documented that Hamas has silenced the media, that they've carried out attacks near media offices, and that the AP, among others, have had a policy of not airing this because they need to maintain that access inside the Gaza Strip. And it, I think it just serves to underscore that Hamas is um, a brutal terrorist organization that controls a territory and in turn controls a lot of the Western media outlets that operate there as well. Abe. So um, I think we, we, something we should talk about is something that uh, not only media, but I think um, large swaths of, of the U.S. government got wrong, at least in their in, in what they said about the conflict, um, which has to do with the causes, um, with 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 what in, inspired this fighting. Right. Um, according to, you know, if you if you read any American paper during the time, this was about a real estate dispute in in East Jerusalem. Um, but uh, in reality, there were uh, m many more factors involved having to do with um, intra-Palestinian politics and um, uh, an, an opportunity for Iran to, uh, to advance uh, its aim in the war between wars. Absolutely. So the, the way that it was cast in the majority of, uh, of news outlets here was that it all stemmed from the controversy surrounding some homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, uh, that there was a court case that was um, uh, coming due and that there were a handful of families that might be evicted from their homes. Um, this was still, I mean, even to this day, we see people reporting about this as the reason that the war broke out. 
So first of all, let me just say wars don't break out because of court cases or real estate disputes. Wars break out because people fire rockets and guns, um, which Hamas did first. No question. They were 50 miles away from the real estate dispute in question and decided that they needed to intervene and to make themselves part of the story, um, maybe as an effort to at least look like they were defending Jerusalem or defending the Palestinian cause. But to be clear, they started the war. Yet somehow Israel has been blamed for this. Now, I, this is not the first time that this has happened. You know, this single point of failure narrative, as we might call it. You know, we saw it when Ariel Sharon took a stroll on the Temple Mount in 2000, and he was blamed for sparking the Second Intifada. There was even in 1929 the first riots that took place in the Holy Land. You know, it people to this day blame the fact that Jews brought down. Um, you know, uh, a mechitza, like a, uh, a separator between men and women uh, for prayer at the temple, um, uh, at the temple mount compound, and that this was what purportedly sparked the war. It's never the fact that there was organized Palestinian violence, never the fact that this sort of stuff was planned well in advance. And I think we can say that for sure um, about the Palestinians here. They had salvos prepared hundreds at a time that doesn't happen over the course of a day or two. They prepared this for months, knowing that they would be launching a war. The one thing that was missed, in my opinion, that really contributed to this, and I would blame the Biden administration for this unequivocally, is that um, just before the war, there was um, the decision made by the Palestinian Authority with help from the United States to cancel Palestinian elections. Now, this dates back to the previous year after the Abraham Accords were signed. The Palestinians began to get nervous that they were losing the sort of hearts and minds of the Arab world. And they decided that after years of civil war, that they would hold elections and try to unify. Um, this was ignored by the Trump administration. But when the Biden administration came in, they supported it. Now, I talked to some Biden administration officials and warned them. I said, this is a terrible idea. Hamas will win seats. And then according to laws put in the books by a guy named Senator Joe Biden, you're going to have to cut funding to the Palestinian Authority and there will be a diplomatic crisis. You don't want this. They didn't actually like that answer, surprisingly, um, and instead said, look, we can't tell other people how to hold elections. Look at our democracy. Look at what happened to us on January 6th. We are in no place to tell other people how to govern. And I, you know, I said, this is a huge mistake. They, they, they perpetuated the fiction for another several months and then finally came to their senses in April. When those elections were finally canceled, that's when Hamas was furious. And in my view, the rockets probably started to fly because Hamas was looking to regain its stature among the Palestinian people. And so rather than blaming this real estate conflict, which, by the way, has been winding its way through the Israeli courts for decades, actually almost a century, I would look at the proximate cause, right? The, the, the thing that happened right before, and that was the canceled elections, which sidelined Hamas, and they looked to regain their footing. Noah? Yeah, Jonathan, I wanted to get your take on a headline that's really relevant <clears throat> to what you were just describing yesterday, French media reported that, um, and this is probably coming from the Israeli government because they don't have many American sources uh, on, the, on the record, but they do have Israeli sources. Um, but the French, French media is reporting that the Biden administration is preparing for an initiative 
aimed at repairing the divisions that have rent asunder Palestinian politics, namely essentially engineering a rapprochement between Hamas and Fatah. Um, This strikes me as a ridiculous idea, and it's surely one that's probably more detrimental to American interests than supportive of them. Uh, It would involve concessions to Fatah, it would involve reopening consulate, it would involve wealth transfers most assuredly, and it's probably doomed to failure because it, you know, it's, it's, this is not something that the United States government, I think, can repair, nor necessarily should, but it does acknowledge, uh, fortunately, uh, the fact that the Palestinian territories are really two very distinct states at this point. They have distinct political cultures, distinct foreign policies, distinct Middle Eastern sponsors, distinct economies. Um, and it acknowledges, finally, that the, the peace process in the Middle East is, is, is not dependent upon Israeli actions, Israeli concessions, um, but that it is uh, an outgrowth of this dynamic in the two Palestinian territories. What is your what is your position on that? Should it if it's even true, if it moves forward, but it's certainly afloat. So, uh, I mean, look, it's a great question. And as you may recall, I I wrote a book on this called Hamas versus Fatah, the struggle for Palestine. It actually has an endorsement by a guy named John Podhoritz on the front. Um, And uh, look, this dynamic has been a crucial one that has been a blind spot, I think, for American policymakers and and foreign policymakers the world over since the war erupted in in 2007. I would say that, as you suggest, you're really looking at two distinct states, almost statelets, um, and they're not likely to be fixed anytime soon. I do laud anyone that tries to fix this problem, because if you are going to try to achieve a two-state solution, you're going to have to solve this. But my problem is that um, you know you get a sense that they're not trying to fix the underlying issue, which is that you have two um, antithetical ideologies, right? You've got a, a quasi-pragmatic Palestinian authority. I'm not saying they're lovely. I'm not saying they're wonderful or that they seek peace, but they're pragmatic. They're willing to work with lots of different actors and they ultimately are trying to build unsuccessfully institutions that would serve as a state. And then you have on the other side, Hamas, which is a terrorist organization so designated here in the United States that continues to divert its um, uh, its resources to waging war. It is um, absolutely against the idea of recognizing Israel or living in peace with its neighbors. And unless you begin to solve that problem, you can't have rec- you can't have reconciliation. You can't have a, a unified Palestinian authority so long as Hamas is one of the two parties involved in the current state that it is. And so there is a huge problem that should be solved, but it cannot be solved so long as you, you refuse to tell Hamas that it has to end its ways. And I just don't think that's humanly possible right now. So uh, it's 2021. One of the things that is so striking about reading your book, Gaza Conflict 2021, is the length of time in which Hamas has been a major player in the struggle uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. As you lay out, Hamas basically was incepted uh, from maybe the last real moment of genuine sort of Palestinian spontaneous populist street action in the first intifada in 1987 when the PLO's leadership was exiled in Tunisia 
and uh, there was a genuinely, you know, uh, up from the ground revolt against uh, against Israel on the part of the Palestinians, and that is when Hamas came into being. It's been 15 years, 16 years since Israel's unilateral withdrawal from Gaza. I believe it's been 15 years since the election that gave Hamas control of the um, of the uh, of, of Gaza. That's actually a pretty long time now. I mean, the Palestinian Authority has only only been in existence for 28 years and 15 of those 28 years, it has not had control of Gaza and Hamas has. And we're dealing with, as I think you say in the book, um, effectively three states, uh, Israel, the Palestinian Authority on the West Bank and Hamas and Gaza. And we continue to imagine that the Palestinians are some kind of unified political force when, as Noah indicates, absolutely the opposite is true. Jonathan Shanzer, this book uh, is a perfect Gaza conflict 2021. You can down, I, as I did this morning, you can download it on the Kindle, buy it in hardcover um, through Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Uh, provides, a, I think, a very, very, very uh, thorough and uh, logical uh, education for anyone who wants to understand what's gone on over the past in this year, this conflict, and then indeed as a kind of uh, short, compact history lesson about the conflict and how we got uh, where we have gotten to today. So I want to thank you very much for joining us. Everybody go download his book, Gaza Conflict 2021. Uh, and um, you should only live and be well, Thanks, as we John. say. And you know who else should only live and be well? Our friend David Bonson. Uh, Abe and I last night were at a book party for David Bonson of the Bonson Group that uh, uh, financial services and management firm with billions of dollars under management. David has a book out called There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. It was a great book party, a lot of fun, a lot of people there, lively, and thumbing through the book as I did, um, it's interesting because it's laid out essentially as a kind of daily devotional uh, uh, on the model of David, whose father was a was a, was a minister, uh, uh, laying out sort of uh, single page topics of interest on uh, economic matters, uh, ideas about free enterprise, um, with, bolstered by quotes from great thinkers, great economists, uh, great. Uh, lovers of freedom and the book uh, is a way of providing people who believe in liberty and free enterprise and the like with a, a real sense of uh, why they believe what they believe and how to argue the points with people who need to be illuminated the way that they have been illuminated and will be illuminated by there's no free lunch so please Go to Amazon again, just like with our friend Chanzer here. <laughs> Go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you download books, wherever you buy hardcovers and get David Bonson's There's No Free Lunch because it, like the Bonson Group, is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management business. All right, so uh, moving on to raw, nightmarish, horrible American politics. Uh, interesting times. Uh, today, I think, because um, we we are now seeing uh, an onslaught against the Republican Party in the wake of the uh, 
victories last week. Um, not without foundation, but interesting how it's all developing this way. Uh, we talked yesterday about um, about the horrible uh, uh, Congressman Paul Gosar and his disgusting uh, retweeting of a video in which he is sort of video game like kills uh, Pelosi and AOC. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is now citing another Republican, disgusting Republican congressman is now citing um, uh, Louis Farrakhan as part of her anti-vaccine madness. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, people are helpfully sort of pointing out that several of the senatorial candidates next year have uh, various domestic abuse problems. Uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia accused of uh, whose who's ex-wife accused him of trying to kill her. Eric Greitens in Missouri, who uh, had an, an affair with a hairdresser who said that there was some S&M stuff going on. And I can't remember the name of the guy in Pennsylvania who's who is literally this week in court dealing with accusations of domestic abuse against his against his wife uh, already endorsed by Trump. So if you take all this together, what you see is uh, we're having that the uh, political class in the United States, a liberal political class in the United States is trying to comfort itself or terrify itself or however you want to look at it. Uh, with the idea that either uh, monsters are about to take the country over or that uh, don't worry because the American people aren't going to let these monsters take take everything over. What do we make of this? Do we think this is organic and, and natural that suddenly, you know, after four or five days about how, you know, terrible things are for the Democrats, we're now focusing on the evil of the Republicans in order to change the story? No, what do you think? Well, I think... I mean, yeah, to a to a certain degree and that the impulse there is obviously on the part of the press and their allies, Democratic allies in the press is to change the subject to something much more comfortable than the very discomforting electoral prospects of Democrats these days. But Republicans like nothing more than criticizing Republicans, too. That's their comfort zone. That's their wheelhouse, especially the types you're talking about, the Gosars, the M MTGs. That's their bread and butter. Um, because in part, they owe their political careers to a, a victimhood complex, a persecution complex. And you cannot really be persecuted by your adversaries, especially when you're in a, in a position to be um, rewarded by, by the electorate for your recalcitrance, obstructionism, what have you. Uh, so when you have, you know, when you're when you hold the reins or at least are positioned to take control of the reins and have power and agency, it it could severely undermine the narrative that Republicans, particularly this type of Republicanism, uh, have fallen into, which is this idea that they are beset on all sides by cultural and political forces that they cannot fight and you cannot fight. And as a result, you should feel victimized and persecuted. And that's that's where they derive their authority from. So there is sort of a conspiracy of shared interests here on the part of the uh, the victimized right, the nationalist conservative right. And um, and they're uh, the Democrats who desperately want to change the subject. Uh, woe, woe to the poor, you know, normal conservatives, conservatives of our stripe uh, for whom you know agency is a virtue and they have control over their own affairs and their environments. Those are the poor guys who have nobody on their side. But there is I mean, there is definitely something that that's kind of the mirror image of the performative squad on the progressive left and the, the, the as you say, the aggrieved, you know, 
populist slash nationalist uh, performance performative right with which I think Marjorie Taylor Greene is a perfect example. So she's continuing to rack up fines by performatively refusing to wear a mask on the House floor. Right. And each time they keep adding to these fines and it's now like a, a pretty significant chunk of her annual salary she will be paying in fines. That makes no sense. Like she's in a position, as Noah says, she's in a position to actually introduce legislation about this or to or to do something other than just perform. But that's why she's in Congress to we frequently cite Yuval, uh, Yuval's point about this, but it's absolutely spot on. And we have a version of that on the right. I do think though, John, that you're correct to say that there's there's a there's an eagerness right now to shift the focus back to these crazy Republicans. We, we always have had crazy Republicans. We always will have crazy Republicans. But there are other Republicans. Look, you know, talk about culture war stuff. People like Senator Tom Cotton are introducing legislation to kind of tackle some of these culture war issues. There are things that some Republicans are trying to do. So I, I it, it annoys me that the focus is so much on this, even though I'm the one who brought up the Gosar video, because I think that is appalling. And I think Kevin McCarthy should do something about it. But we are going to we I don't want to fall into the same loop where our performative Republicans become the face of the party in the way that, quite frankly, Biden and the Democrats have allowed the progressive caucus to become something we didn't say yesterday briefly about uh, Chris Sununu, uh, who dropped dropped out of speculation that he was going to run for the Senate um, that we should have said more about. And I should have said more about. And I want to take the opportunity to correct that mistake when he decided not to run for Senate. He, he did so in a flamboyant, ostentatious way that attacked the institution of Congress for being a, a, a worthless talk shop. He was going to he wouldn't go to Congress to engage in, quote, partisan politics and get nothing done. Um, and that is the sort of thing that is perpetuating the problem. It is the other side of the coin when jealous stewards of power, jealous, not meaning envious, but jealous, meaning uh, covetous or, or, you know, appreciative. Um, when they abjure, when they they uh, abdicate their responsibilities uh, in favor of seeking more uh, effective offices and executive positions, uh, they are abandoning the institution to pre- performers, to people who have no interest in stewarding power and only want to be in Congress for the camera time. So this condition is is. You know, is not just the fault of the people who have no substance to them and only want to be uh, performers. It's also the fault of people who uh, don't and who reject the call uh, that that otherwise would uh, help, you know, help repair this institution and make it much more effective and dumping all over Mitch McConnell as though he's some sort of a just a, you know, a partisan hack who gets nothing done is frankly wrong. And it, and, it, and it just it creates more of this kind of hostility to this institution among and, and establishmentarian Republicans among the Republican voters that Chris Sununu won't benefit from ultimately well, in Chris, the long run. So Chris Sununu per, per, personally is not obliged to go in as an individual person out of 100 and save the Senate because he's a serious legislator as opposed to, you know, some clown who would who would come in otherwise. That's not his. He he has a job. He's been elected as the governor of of the state of New Hampshire, he prefers being an executive, and 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 uh, I frankly I can totally understand why, based on all of these experiences. Um, this is a change that has that isn't going to be done one one by one uh, with you know serious legislators. It is a change that has to take place in the American soul and psyche, and it's going to be a generation in coming. It took a generation for us to get here. It's going to take a generation for us to get out of this 
uh, notion, as 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 Yuval Levin puts it, that uh, that uh, these institutions used to mold people into becoming legislators, and now they are platforms from which people be people uh, take the title of legislator and become and become actors. Uh, it's a stage as opposed to a, as opposed to a molding body. Having having said that. Um, uh, I just my I, I just want to point out that uh, you know there's if we're doing freak show stuff, um, there's freak show stuff that once again the mainstream media won't cover like this controller of the currency, the Biden Treasury nominee to be controller of the currency Saula Omarova, who is literally a Russian Marxist. I mean she was trained at Moscow State University. She says that, you know, what she wants to do is destroy the carbon, you know, she wants to destroy carbon states and, and destroy, you know, for, for the purposes of global warming. Um, and it is, you know, under other circumstances, again, if the situations are reversed, this nomination would be a headline in every newspaper for a week if a person of her, you know, sort of like her bizarro image were nominated to this job uh, in the Trump administration. Um, it is it is jaw dropping. I don't understand how it happened. Tom Cotton is one of the people who has pointed out the horror of this nomination, um, and and that's another way in which the media are sort of falling, or you know, just exist as a kind of rubber stamp for Democrats and 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 uh, refuse to acknowledge the freak show nature of the Democratic Party. I'm I'm trying to remember how the mainstream media covered. Katie Hill, uh, the California representative whose uh, thruple relationship and uh, sort of, you know, became this, uh, this very strange uh, sexual psychodrama. Uh, I, I, I know that you could I, I know the New York Post was all over it. Um, but I, I remember. Uh, but please, okay. she, please, she was the she was treated as if she was some you know naive, maybe slightly sexually confused, naive young woman who was just crushed by an institution that didn't understand her. When in fact, what she was was tossed out on her ear by Pelosi, right? For for absolutely violating a million ethics rules in the house. But right. She was, well, but there are she two was treated things. as a victim because right. her because her husband. Yes, but that, but that was that was that was that was after, after fact, but during right. she was actually described it, the ethics rules was covered as much as the fact that she was a victim of these pictures that were released without her consent. I will say this about Katie Hill, which is and this goes to Katie Hill and it goes to Al Franken and a couple of other things that the Democrats have been relatively ruthless in pursuit of their own uh, efforts to do damage control Um with with a compliant press, in other words, like the Katie Hill, the count, the Katie Hill counterattack really did not happen until after she was out of office because Pelosi had determined this was a very bad thing for them to have to vie with or deal with if they were going to go on the attack against uh, Republican uh, misbehavior. And that this was just a talking point for Fox, that her presence would be a continued uh, you know, gimme to the conservative press, a lascivious gimme to the and, and that she needed to get her out of there and convince her to resign, which she did. Right. Similarly, Al Franken was convinced to resign his office for the purposes of saving the Senate for the Democrats and making sure that Roy Moore won essentially one election, that there was no impediment to 
Democrats running on the idea that Republicans were sex criminals uh, in 2018. And then Roy Moore, who was going to be the focus of this nationalization of the Senate races, lost in Alabama after Franken quit on the basis of a single photograph that showed him miming stroking a woman's breasts whose breasts he did not even stroke. Okay, but but the but the but the turnaround for the rehab of people like Katie Hill has been completely different than it has for others. So she just did a Vanity Fair spread in a bikini showing off her pregnancy and yeah. then you know all this puffery about her. And you know she's I think she's writing books. You know she she her turnaround time from scandal to reemergence in the public spotlight was very short, which suggests to me that they really didn't take the ethics violations as seriously as they might have had this been a republic involved right. in a thruple and violating ethics rules like a Bob no, Packwood, for example. No, absolutely. But let's go back to let's go back to my friend, the controller of the currency here. OK. What the hell is she doing being the controller of the being nominated to be controller of the currency? What the hell is going on here? Like every administration has every administration has demented nominees for office. Right. Right now. We have Jonathan Carl in The Atlantic, an excerpt from his book, talking about this lunatic, Johnny McGinnis, who ended up being Trump's enforcer in the White House in, in, in 2020. Um, and, and, and these people he sent out through the administration to root out, you know, uh, evildoers who are doing things like t- trying to take plaques off the walls at the Homeland Security Department because traitors' names are on the walls, like Miles Taylor, the guy who was anonymous, who wrote the op-ed and the book and all that. Like, literally, a, a White House designee, the, the person who is the liaison to the department, is like walking in the hallways of the Department of Homeland Security with a screwdriver trying to take pl- names off plaques off a wall. Like, th- this is the kind of behavior. This is, it's crazy. There's craziness. Administrations are made up of people Politics is made up of people who get, you know, who who are who are rewarded for things. Uh, I just think that once again we have this thing where there is just a simply an unequal uh, amplification of the craziness. Like this woman should not be there. Uh, it's outrageous that she's going to be controller of the currency. It's not clear whose friend she is, so that she got this job. And uh, I assume that her nomination is going to go down in part because I assume that every Republican will vote against her and she's like been incredibly insulting to Joe Manchin. So what, why would Manchin vote her in? Like she's dead. So they should just withdraw her, but instead, you know, so I don't know. It's just an interesting, you know, set of, she's, she's probably, she's probably been set up like near a Tandon to go down and then they can hire her in the executive office, you know, over at the presidency where she won't need confirmation, just like they did with Tandon. So. Okay, no, I want to talk. I want to talk once again to our listeners about Bolin Branch sheets, and I, I'm going to rely on you in a minute to give us a sense of why personally you think people should consider buying Bolin Branch sheets. Look, we spend a third of our lives in bed, and these pure organic cotton sheets from Bolin Branch make a truly special gift. They make hot the highest quality sheets by doing things the right way, not. The easy way husband and wife team Scott and Missy Tannen founded Bowen Branch to create a new standard in bedding. Uh, they, they source pure organic cotton. They put workers' rights first. It's not just sheets made the right way. Pillows, bath towels, robes are too. Noah, you've got some sheets. Tell us about them. Yes, I got uh, <clears throat> a set of sheets on 
Sunday, they were delivered to my house and I, I literally had just made the bed and I ripped apart my my beautiful bed making so that I could put these sheets on them immediately. And I slept on them that night. They are uh, very luxurious. They have a high thread count, which is something you hear a lot about. And you're like, well, who cares for all the threads? Who needs so many threads? But you notice it when you sleep on it. It is a difference. And my favorite part about them is that they fit on a king size mattress. I was talking about this yesterday. There's so many king size mattress fitted sheets that go over a king size mattress and then just migrate on you over the course of a night so that you wake up in the morning and they're half off and you're basically on a naked mattress and it's kind of violating it's it's icky to sleep on an, an, on a mattress in a way that i can't describe this doesn't happen to you with bowling brand sheets they actually fit on the mattress i got pewter as a color it's a lovely color i highly recommend it my whole house is covered in, in pewter um can't recommend these sheets highly enough they are as good as john is saying they are Okay, so treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard in bedding from Bolin Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready in special holiday packaging. Order by December 19th for guaranteed delivery by Christmas and get 20% off your order from November 12th to November 17th with promo code commentary at bolandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code commentary. See site for details. Exclusions may apply. Okay, I had a brilliant place to go, and now I've totally... Oh, yes. Uh, inflation. Bad, very bad. Highest inflation rate in 30 years, I believe, is our, is our current, uh, is, is what we understand. And uh, if this goes on a couple more months, it will be the highest inflation rate in 50 years. 40 years, 40-some-odd 40 years. Here's the thing about inflation. There's no reason to make a political hay out of it. It either is or it isn't. This is the key... This is why it's not like policy having an argument over whether or not the infrastructure bill helps you or the social infrastructure bill helps you or you're being helped by, you know, unemployment insurance or something like that. People feel inflation. They go to the store. Things cost more. Gas prices cost more. They, they order dishes at a restaurant. The food is the same price. You get 25% less food than you got the week before. This is inflation. It is unmistakable. It is, it is a lived experience for everybody who has it, and it is life-changing. And it is, it is at the root of politics in the world. Inflation is one of the most destabilizing political forces on earth. It is in every country where people are able to vote and in countries where people are not able to vote, where authoritarian countries do whatever they can to subsidize the price of bread because they know if they don't, they're going to face uprisings and things like that because the price of bread rises in ways that they cannot control. If something doesn't happen with inflation to reverse this, and again, I, it seems to me everything's going the wrong direction. You have a lot of government spending that actually creates inflation. It doesn't, it doesn't do the opposite. You're, you're flooding the market with dollars. You are having public sector competing with private sector for workers, for much, for resources, all of that that inflates prices. I mean, there is going to be a record. There's the, the, we're reaping the whirlwind here, and we already saw it in the election last week. What is the one phenomenon that unites? Uh, two phenomena unite: New Jersey, uh, Virginia, Long Island, Buffalo. Uh, Seattle, all of that, which is people feeling discomfited 
by the living circumstances under which they function and wanting a major change. And you can say it's about crime, it's about COVID, it's about the disruptions of COVID. Inflation is largely the result of, of the disruptions of COVID and ancillary problems with COVID. But, um, you know, uh, politicians cannot withstand this. I mean, I don't, it's not that Democrats are going to be, you know, uniquely uh, hostage to this, although they are the ones in power and it's much more easy to blame them for the political circumstances of the present moment. But, um, you know, any pundit effort, any, you know, any uh, talk show effort, any effort to sort of say inflation isn't that big or say it's transitory or something like that is just a fool's errand because it is what it is. Okay, so everybody who's read any conservative literature over the last 20, 30 years has an instinctive fear of what inflation does to a political economy because of its terrible psychological effects on average people. When the money in your wallet is worth less today than it was yesterday, it has really powerful psychological effects and none of them are good. Uh, and given our, the state of our current politics, um, where paranoia is currency, uh, it's only going to get worse. That sort of condition is only going to get worse. And Democrats have one answer to this situation is that we just need to keep spending. We need, we need more social programs. I mean, at least Jimmy Carter had the wherewithal to understand that you needed to at least pare back federal benefits for federal workers to understand the politics of the moment. But they don't. They think you know the answer to inflation is childcare. At least that's what they're saying. But what is the Republican answer to inflation now? Because it's not Paul Volcherism. It's not engineered pain in order to get the currency back to a place that's sustainable. What is it going to be? I mean, is it price and wage controls? Because national conservatism has all the, all the imagination of the Nixon era. I, I literally, what, what is their response to this? Because they're going to have to formulate one pretty soon. Okay, if you're talking about national conservatism, the national conservative response is tariffs by American bring jobs home, all of which will be inflationary. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, um, it's not, you know, that that is literally inflationary. That is to say, that was you their, are, that's not an answer to inflation. That's their answer to the, the dissatisfaction of the American working class and what have you and their attack on big business, whatever. It's not an answer to inflation because it's the same response that they were. It's the same response to economic conditions that prevailed in 2016. So it's not, you know, a unique in that sense, I guess you're right, because it's let's the Democrats are saying the only answer is to do exactly what we've been doing. So Republicans will say the exact same thing. But it, it, it sidesteps the, the policy. But there is no political response to inflation. I mean, that is to say, when you get inflation that is going the way that it is going here, involving matters that are not so easily resolvable with political, you know, snaps of fingers, uh, not enough truckers, uh, you know, uh, to unload things at ports and not enough truckers to transport goods and 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 stuff like that. Like you can't snap your fingers and make My that stop. limited understanding of e economic policy in the 20th century is that the only way out of this century. 20, 20th century. Are you talking about the 20th century? Yeah. Is that the only way out of these cycles when they become self-perpetuating self is pain. But the pain, pain. Right. But the engineered pain is not engineered by politicians. The engineered pain is engineered by the Federal Reserve, which is one of the reasons that we have a Federal Reserve, which is one of the reasons why the currency is not in the direct control of elected politicians. 
because that way lies the Weimar Republic. And that way lies, you know, enough enough currency so that you can wallpaper your room with the currency. Abe? Well, I think, you know, one thing uh, the right can make political hay out of here is that um, the Biden administration was warned uh, very publicly um, about spending and overheating um, by uh, Larry Summers, among others, um, and absolutely refused to heed the criticism. I mean, you know, full steam ahead, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I I, look, I think that Democrats are going to reap the whirlwind. I'm just saying that there there's there are instabilities here. And uh, and and so you don't really know. I, I think that's where Noah's right to invoke uh, conservative populist paranoia, as well as all the other sorts of things you can invoke, which is that it will be decided that somehow this is being done deliberately and consciously to harass people who think that the election was stolen or, you know, or who don't want the vaccine or something like that. It's going to be very easy for, you know, for some lunatic talk show hosts to make points like that when you're talking about global trends and the U.S. economy uh, kind of functioning in an out-of-control fashion. But I'm not entirely convinced that the Republicans have to articulate a clear policy solution out of this, to be honest. Um, it, it's kind of the mirror image of Democrats and COVID during Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Trump got, look what Trump did. Look, look at the state of, of the U.S. in the pandemic. Let's get him out. We're going to fix this. How? You know, it's that still we still don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, there was an alternative blue state model to the COVID regime that that Donald Trump was presiding over, and that was presented as a policy alternative that was right. tangible that you could look to and say, this is how you, you should be doing it. And that's that's how they promoted themselves. There's no state level model for combating inflation. Right. I look, we, it, it, the whole point is that this is uh, we haven't seen anything like this really since I was a teenager, we are heading into a peer, a possible period of economic fecklessness involving loose fed and, you know, massive amounts of government spending and all of that, that is going to have consequences that are very difficult to overcome without the kind of pain that Noah is talking about. And it wasn't as though Ronald Reagan came into power and said, Hey, guess what? We're going to, we're going to cut taxes, but at the same time, the Fed is going to engineer an unbelievably painful recession that is going to raise the unemployment rate above 10 percent and cost Republicans 26 seats in the House and threaten my reelection. Like he didn't. That wasn't a plan. It wasn't. It was that Paul Volcker looked. There had been 10 years of worsening inflation. And Paul Volcker said, we have one option and one option only. And the option is to tighten the money supply and choke inflation dead. And the problem now is that, you know, should the Build Back Better bill become law, which I doubt it will, but should it be be law, you are essentially hastening the moment at which the Fed is going to have to engineer a recession and a really painful recession just two years after COVID in order to do something about the fact that government spending is going to make bring inflation. We have an 8.6% jump in inflation over year over year in the month of September. 8.6%. The highest in 30 years. 
Yeah, but you think that that's that's you know based on what it was like in September 2020, which of course was a particularly bad moment because we were just through the summer of COVID. Nonetheless, we are in you know we we are in jeopardy here, and the and the odd thing is that the more you do to stimulate the economy top down uh, or, you know, to do government spending, to do things with the economy, uh, the more you're going to gin up inflation and the more you are going to compel the Fed at some point to engineer a pretty severe counter response since the Fed right now is proving itself utterly incapable of doing anything to contain the spread of inflation now. I was having this argument this morning with uh, Joe uh, Wiesenthal, Wiesenthal, who's a financial analyst, I think, at Bloomberg. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it seems to me that tightening the money supply is the answer. And his response is illustrative, I think, of what the Democratic response is going to be, where he said, quote, I'm curious who you think should lose their jobs right now. Emotional manipulation is going to be the response. Yeah. And it's going who to be a very go- effective response. Yeah, but you know, but it's, the, it's also, the it's answer also to that bizarre, is also yeah. briefly, the answer to that is yeah. also that we have a ridiculous slack in the in the labor market right yeah. now. So yeah, first of all, we have a four, we have a yeah, compute. we have an we have an unemployment rate of four point six percent, not an unemployment employment rate of eight. That's number one. And number two, it doesn't compute to say who's going to lose their job, because the fact is that, yeah, there are nine million jobs that are empty and there may be not jobs that people want. But uh, but but playing that card is is almost demented. It is demented to say the Fed needs to tighten in order to choke off inflation, because if you have a job and you have a job and you're and, and the salary that you get from that job is worth 20 percent less next year than it is this year because consumer prices have gone through the roof and commodities have gone through the roof and gas has gone through the roof and all of that. Um, Your job isn't going to be that satisfying to you. And the public will vote themselves this. I mean, in 1980, it's not as though the public didn't know what they were voting themselves. It's that the pain of the cost of living was unendurable for more people than the economic conditions would be in an an induced recession. It's just a numbers game. And and they were outvoted. Yeah. Now, speaking of jobs and the and 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 living with your job and being the sort of person who hires uh, people and and runs and runs businesses, let me talk to you about Bambi because you know when running a business, HR issues can kill you, and those HR manager salaries aren't cheap—an average of seventy thousand dollars a year. So Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically to help small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy. And maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month-to-month. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Okay, so we got to go. I'm excited to say that we've closed our December issue. Uh, We have been having some uh, trouble uh, with the post office, like everybody else uh, in the universe. And um, and so uh, ordinarily, we would have closed our issue last week. We closed it this week. We will have a bunch of stuff up online 
uh, toward the end of this week and early next week. And hopefully the magazine uh, for subscribers will be in your hands several weeks earlier than the was the case with the November issue. It's not our fault. It's the post office's fault. But we now have to deal with the reality of a, of a, of a significantly bruised and significantly compromised post office. And we are going to have to adjust our deadlines, our monthly deadlines accordingly in order to get the magazine in your hands. But of course, if you're a subscriber, you can read the issue in full online uh, at will uh, when we when we put it up. So for Abe, Christine, and no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.